welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. The United States is the world's leading foreign aid donor, but it often does not have uh, the impact that it is intended to have, and it might do more harm than good in many cases. My guest today is Jessica Trisco Darden, as she's assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University. And last year, she authored a book published by Stanford University Press entitled Aiding and Abetting U.S. Foreign Assistance and State Violence. Jessica, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start out by just uh, explaining the, the main thesis of the book. And you also include in, in the introduction a, a bit of information about your personal history and how you've come to this issue from a, a unique way. So tell us about that. So aiding and abetting deals with this central problem in U.S. foreign aid policy, where we've designed decades and decades of U.S. foreign assistance around the idea that aid is a key tool for promoting democracy and human rights abroad. And I was interested in this topic as a, as a young researcher because my family's own experience um, in the struggle for democracy overseas. When my mother was a college student, um, she was involved in some protests against the Marcos uh, dictatorship that was established in the Philippines. And she was actually arrested as a young uh, college student, an experience that you know many of my own students uh, have recently had as well. As a result of this, though, my family had to flee the Philippines, and this process uh, was drawn out. They had to undergo medical examinations, uh, meet with tax inspectors, and eventually settled uh, in Canada in the mid-1970s. And what really fascinated me about this experience was the role that the United States played as a key ally to Ferdinand Marcos uh, during his almost decade in power uh, under a military dictatorship. And the United States always framed the Philippines as this kind of key example of uh, anti-communism, a key supporter of U.S. military interests in the region. But ultimately, democracy in the Philippines was restored only when Marcos was toppled from power in a broad societal movement. So when I started researching foreign assistance and its relationship to human rights, I was fascinated by this puzzle of how U.S. foreign aid could be so centered on promoting human freedoms and yet play such a key role in suppressing them abroad. So aiding and abetting argues that U.S. foreign assistance, both military and economic, can contribute to the suppression of human rights uh, and liberties overseas. And I explain how this occurs through two mechanisms. The first mechanism is what's called an income effect. Essentially, it gives governments more resources to do uh, what they see fit with. So in some instances, you might have a really responsible government that devotes foreign assistance funding to health care and education and road building and lots of public services and goods. But in other instances, particularly when a head of state or political regime sees threats to its power or is facing civil war, a state's going to devote those foreign assistance resources to maintaining their hold on power at any cost. And what's really interesting, as I detail in the case studies in the book, is that both economic and military aid have a role to play in this dynamic. 
Okay, so let's try to get a scope of uh, the nature of the problem. How did the United States come to be the world's leading foreign aid donor? Give us a bit of that history. How much do we give? Where does it go and why? So it all started with President Harry Truman. Uh, and many of us are familiar with the creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Perhaps you've heard of the Marshall Plan. You know that the United States engaged with the United Nations under the Truman administration. Um, but you may not know that Truman's kind of fourth legacy, what's come to be known as point four or the fourth point, focused on establishing a global aid program to the developing world. And Truman really saw poverty as a threat, not only to people overseas who were suffering and living in dire conditions, but as a threat to America's security and economic interests as well. The first bilateral foreign assistance program uh, in this kind of developing country focus uh, was signed with Iran in 1950 and agreements with Brazil, Indonesia, Pakistan, and other countries swiftly followed. Throughout the 1950s, we see the expansion of this foreign aid agenda globally, but it slowly becomes securitized in the wake of the um, success of the Chinese uh, takeover, or sorry, communist takeover in China, rather, in 1949. The uh, Korean War breaks out, and foreign aid becomes reconceptualized as an instrument for fighting communism overseas. And this shifts us from this initial uh, economic development and kind of human emancipation focus to, to a more security-driven paradigm. This tension persists to the present day. We have the creation of kind of new programs over the decades, including food aid or the Food for Peace program. Uh, notably, we have the creation of PEPFAR under the Bush administration, which is focused on HIV AIDS. We have obviously now a strong pandemic focus and global health focus in U.S. foreign aid policy. But this core tension between whether foreign aid is designed to promote the common good and the betterment of all of humanity, or whether it's designed to forward America's security and economic interests remains unresolved. And that tension is uh, revealed in the way in which aid gets distributed and used by these foreign governments. You talk a lot about fungibility in the book, the fact that we can um, say that we want to give aid towards this, that, or the other thing, but once it's in the hands of the regime, they can basically do what they want with it. And this is particularly true of bilateral foreign aid, which is aid given by the United States government directly to a recipient government. And a really helpful way to think about it is, you know, maybe a relative gave you a bit of cash for the holidays, right? And, and they want you to spend that cash on some particular thing, maybe to buy, you know, textbooks for college or to repair your leaky hot water tank, right? But ultimately, once they give you the money, you can spend it on whatever you want. Uh, and you can spend it responsibly or irresponsibly. And so the crux of my argument really is that when governments are under um, conditions where their hold on power is under threat, where they can rely on the use of force to maintain power, they will do so. And so I spend most of the book uh, documenting this historically, how both military assistance and economic assistance, and in particular food aid, uh, 
plays this role. And food aid is really important because it's a kind of cornerstone of U.S. foreign aid policy. Essentially, the U.S. government buys excess agricultural goods from American farmers and ships that overseas at a discounted rate or for free as part of its foreign aid program. This aid uh, has to travel on U.S. flagged vessels, so both farmers and the U.S. shipping industry benefits. And when this aid is received uh, in developing countries, there are a few things they can do. Historically, a lot of food aid was sold on the global market. So essentially, we were providing U.S. food, which could also include other agricultural products such as cotton, shipping it overseas to countries who could then sell that those very same agricultural products on the free market uh, and receive cash in return. And that's kind of the, the highest level of fungibility uh, that I identify in the book. But in other instances, food aid also helped governments subsidize their military. So for instance, in Indonesia, the U.S. government provided rice as food assistance to Indonesia. And Indonesia then used that rice to feed its military. So it had indirect uh, security implications as well. What's really interesting about this, and why in particular I draw attention to this in my research, is that there is a, a broad assumption that food aid is perhaps the most positive uh, form of foreign assistance one could provide, right? It's intended to ease malnutrition, to allow children to have lunches, to go to schools, right? To to feed the hungry. But in practice, um, very little food assistance historically has served that end. It's incredible to know that such a thing like food aid and feeding the hungry is also has these kinds of uh, unintended consequences. It's a known fact, I think, that uh, some U.S. aid historically has led to uh, assisting regimes that are not so democratic to stay in power and even carry out atrocities or human rights abuses. And so, you know, things pop up like the Leahy laws, uh, att- legislation that attempts to curtail uh, this problem, that attempts to direct funds, that attempts to make aid dependent on certain behavior. Talk about those efforts and uh, the extent to which they're successful. Absolutely. So there's clearly been a recognition that we would like to restrict the foreign assistance we provide to regimes that are outrightly corrupt or repressive, right? Uh, If our goal is indeed to promote human rights and democracy overseas. The Leahy laws um, are named in honor of uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, who really has spent his career focused on human rights issues. And so the Leahy laws are kind of a broad label um, to several amendments on pieces of legislation that all aim to achieve the same purpose, and that is to restrict U.S. foreign assistance to military units that have engaged in gross violations of human rights. So, for instance, uh, if a military unit has engaged in, you know, unauthorized extrajudicial killing or acts of torture and uh, have been identified as doing so, then the Leahy laws prohibit the U.S. government for providing military funding, assistance, or training to members of that unit. And this makes sense, right? If we don't want to give human rights abusers more resources to abuse human rights. In practice, however, it's been more complicated because the the laws on the U.S. side don't stipulate 
um, when funding can resume, whether it means that all members of that unit have been reassigned, whether it means if those individuals have been removed from the military hierarchy, etc. In addition, presidential waivers can also be used to get around some of these funding restrictions. And so while this has been an important tool for the Congress to kind of assert greater authority on where and how U.S. foreign assistance has been spent. It's been an imperfect tool for promoting human rights. Okay, so let's make this uh, concrete and talk about some of the case studies that you look at. Let's start with Indonesia. Indonesia is a really fascinating case. It was very much kind of a, a parallel case to my family's own experience with dictatorship. Um, but also Indonesia had an unclear place um, in the kind of security map of the world from a U.S. perspective. Uh, It was a non-aligned country um, immediately post-independence. It emerged uh, as an independent country following a essentially anti-colonial war um, after Japanese occupation during World War II, the Dutch attempted to reoccupy Indonesia, and Indonesians resisted this effort. Um, so the United States' relationship with Indonesia was kind of half-hearted at best until uh, Major General Suharto came to power in a military coup, and he replaced the nation's founding father, uh, Sukarno. Um, at a time when Sukarno was being perceived as increasingly aligned with the Soviet Union. So suddenly we have this kind of anti-communist military leader in power, and the United States really sees this as an opportunity to forestall the expansion of communism in Southeast Asia. However, because Indonesia... um, has this really conflictual political history. It's an archipelago of thousands of islands. Uh, Suharto really has a problem with consolidating power and the need to consolidate power. And so a lot of U.S. foreign assistance to Indonesia was focused on that, ensuring that the government was able to maintain control over the archipelago. Where the U.S.-Indonesia relationship starts to get into some trouble, however, is when Indonesia starts undertaking expansionist activities. And so we have uh, a territory called uh, West Papua. It's part of uh, the island of Papua New Guinea. Uh, It's the western half of the island. It was a Dutch territory that did not decolonize at the same time as Indonesia. And Indonesia sought to forcibly uh, take over that territory. To make a long story short, it did. Uh, It then went on to uh, forcibly take over a Portuguese uh, colonial territory, East Timor. And this is where the United States became directly implicated in human rights abuses by the Indonesian regime, because U.S. um, military assets that had been provided to Indonesia um, as part of a security agreement were used in the invasion um, of East Timor and the subsequent occupation of that territory. So then suddenly Indonesia is kind of on the human rights radar um, and the United States is being criticized for the use of its military assets in these operations. And why I think this case is really 
important uh, is because it demonstrates that the kind of line between foreign assistance and human rights abuses is not always very straightforward. Uh, This was a kind of complex security environment where Indonesia had expansionist objectives. Um, But the United States was continually aware that the foreign assistance it was providing to Indonesia um, could and in fact would be diverted uh, to support these military objectives. What was the scale of the, the humanitarian crisis and abuse that took place in East Timor? So uh, some claim that the Indonesian uh, invasion of East Timor amounted to a genocide. Approximately half of the population was displaced. Um, and over the decades that followed, um, Suharto followed what was called the Transmigration Program, where um, individuals from kind of central Indonesia were resettled into these outlying territories as part of an attempt at uh, what some would claim was ethnic colonization of these outlying territories. What is really relevant is that in both Papua and East Timor, the local inhabitants kind of rebelled against Indonesian colonialism and in both instances launched um, civil wars. And so during the course of the civil war uh, in East Timor, the Indonesian military escalated uh, and undertook counterinsurgency campaigns um, that were again supported indirectly by the United States. Um, so a lot of the military officers that were engaged in counterinsurgency in East Timor and other parts of Indonesia had received military training from the United States um, and other similar resources. Where we get to resolution in terms of East Timor is uh, towards the end of the Suharto regime, we actually see an kind of uptick in Uh, resistance to Suharto, similar to what we saw with Marcos in the Philippines. And in 1998, he essentially um, resigns power in the face of mass protests. This kind of brings things to a head in East Timor. We eventually get UN intervention and a transition to East Timor's uh, current status as an independent country. And I think the lesson here, again, is that we need to reconcile these broader objectives of promoting human rights and democracy with our security interests, right? Was Suharto an agent of democracy in Indonesia? Absolutely not. Has Indonesia thrived as a vibrant multi-party democracy in a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional country since his departure? Absolutely, right? And so if the goal was to kind of promote democracy in Southeast Asia, uh, U.S. policy failed. If the goal was to forestall communist expansion, then it succeeded. And I think ultimately we have a very hard time reconciling these objectives. Yeah, you take some time in the book to illustrate the ways in which there's a kind of wrestling that goes on on the U.S. side on this issue where there are some attempts like the Leahy laws to address this problem, acknowledge it and try to improve. And then there's another tendency to uh, almost deliberately try to get around those and understand, like you mentioned Kissinger, sort of making promises to Indonesia 
despite expecting that Congress might, even though they didn't, uh, end up uh, you know, prohibiting aid. And that happened with El Salvador, too, your next case study. You write, quote, evidence suggests that the Reagan administration was regularly providing false or incomplete information to Congress by omitting or classifying relevant details and providing overly optimistic assessments of the impact of U.S. foreign assistance in the country, in this case to El Salvador. But this is also a case where an intense civil war was going on there and a lot of human rights abuses and atrocities taking place. So talk to us a little bit about El Salvador. I think El Salvador is so interesting, not only because it remains a very important uh, country for for U.S. foreign policy today, but also because it echoes so much our attempts to intervene in in Venezuela today. And so the idea that we have overly optimistic forecasts of outcomes uh, rings particularly true when thinking about Venezuela now. Uh, Essentially, El Salvador is another case where the United States aligned itself um, with non-democratic leaders uh, in an effort to kind of forestall um, another country going communist, uh, as we would have said at the time. And uh, the U.S. was explicitly backing a military junta in the context of El Salvador's civil war. So until the Civil War broke out uh, with the formation of a paramilitary group called the Ferbundo Marti National Liberation Front, or FMLN, El Salvador wasn't even on the U.S. radar. It was a small, insignificant country in Central America. Um, But the idea that another uh, communist uh, group could come to power so quickly after Nicaragua had uh, fallen to communism, really focused the Reagan administration's attention on this particular country. What's fascinating about El Salvador is that the historical record remains heavily disputed. So we provided both military and economic assistance to El Salvador, and congressional investigations subsequently established that the vast majority of economic assistance that we provided contributed to the Salvadoran government's war effort. Um, because the FMLN in particular pursued a strategy of economic sabotage. They would blow up buildings, they would blow up roads and power plants, and U.S. foreign aid would be used to rebuild that infrastructure. Some argue that the military assistance we provided actually played a key role in professionalizing the military, reducing human rights abuses in the long run, um, and ensuring that the FMLN were were defeated and would come to the peace table. Uh, Those on kind of the alternative perspective argue that U.S. foreign aid extended the length and violence and costliness of the war um, by allowing the Salvadoran government to continue to resist and by not forcing a resolution to the conflict. And we see this kind of evidence in in lots of different ways. So one really interesting anecdote that I'll share from this case is that at one point, the United States was providing uh, non-lethal military assistance to the Salvadoran government. And what that looked like 
uh, was jet fuel. So essentially, we were we were shipping jet fuel to El Salvador for the Salvadoran uh, Air Force to use. However, this happened to be occurring at the same time uh, that the Contras were operating, and El Salvador was uh, probably, with U.S. awareness, selling that jet fuel to the Contras for cash. Uh, it was also selling that jet fuel back to U.S. military. Um, assets stationed in El Salvador. So U.S. taxpayer subsidized jet fuel went to El Salvador only to be sold back to the U.S. military. And so it's another really great example of how some of these different foreign aid assets can be used to generate uh, cash or can operate in fungible ways. Um, You also look at South Korea. That's a bit of a unique case because it is a case where the country successfully transitioned to democracy after spending uh, a long time receiving U.S. aid um, as a dictatorship. So uh, talk about that case. And South Korea really is an exceptional case because we obviously have the context of the Korean War and the U.S. um, occupation that occurred as part of that, where the U.S. military for a significant period of time had command, uh, command control over South Korean forces. But South Korea is also unique in that it's a case where military aid um, greatly exceeded economic aid. So in the immediate aftermath of the Korean War, we have very, very significant levels of economic aid going to South Korea. But as South Korea rebounds from that war and develops industrial capacity and eventually becomes one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world, we see a rapid decline in in economic assistance to South Korea. Yet we maintain relatively high levels of military assistance peaking in in the early 1970s. And what I argue is that this actually um, helps illustrate one of the main findings of the statistical research uh, that I present in the book, which is that military aid actually has a positive association with respect for human rights. So countries where we give high levels of military aid tend to be more uh, respective of human rights, engage in less torture, engage in less extrajudicial killing. Uh, and one reason that this may occur is through military professionalization, right? This was one hypothesis um, that's been put out there by other scholars for El Salvador, but I think it's very compelling in the case of, of South Korea as well. Um, but it also demonstrates that um, threat environments matter, right? So South Korea really needed this military assistance because of the direct threat posed by North Korea. So unlike the other cases where we had internal challengers to government in the face of rebel groups or organized opposition groups, in South Korea, we had a very real existential threat to the government uh, in terms of North Korea. And so I argue that this is a case where military aid did exactly what it should be doing, right? Provide for the external defense of the country rather than contribute to kind of internal policing functions. Um, And what's really important to note in the South Korean case as well that I think has broader implications is that South Korea transitions to democracy when our aid uh, starts dropping off, 
right? So when the United States decides that it no longer makes sense to provide high levels of economic or military assistance to South Korea is when we finally see a transition uh, to democracy in that country. And so I argue that the South Korean case is really evidence of the fact that that these declines in foreign assistance can help usher in democratic transitions. Interesting. Uh, the whole problem, I mean, as you pointed out in the beginning of our discussion, it kind of started as a child of the Cold War, our, our foreign aid programs. Um, and as we transitioned out of the Cold War and approached the world of the 90s in the post-Cold War era, um, and then moved into the kind of global war on terror era, um, our approach to aid shifted somewhat in terms of the security justifications. But what does it look like in, in the 21st century for us? Uh, is it dramatically different than the way we handled these issues in the Cold War? What my statistical investigations suggest is uh, no. <laughs> so essentially, if we look at uh, U.S. foreign assistance before and after the Cold War and U.S. foreign assistance, um, in particular in this kind of post-9-11 global war on terror era, we still find economic assistance to be strongly uh, correlated with government human rights abuses, whether that be mass killings, repression, or torture. And so while many people think of this as an artifact of the Cold War and U.S. support for dictators abroad, these same dynamics where U.S. foreign assistance is fueling state-led violence and state repression against citizens is happening today. And in the book, I use the case of South Sudan as an example to illustrate this. It's the world's newest country. It was born out of a civil war, um, but immediately dissolved into its own civil war as various um, factions sought to, to gain power in the country. Uh, it's a country where child soldiering is prevalent and where Despite these sorts of um, funding restrictions that we have, we talked about the Leahy laws earlier. We similarly have a law against the use of child soldiering. Um, presidential waivers have been issued so we can continue to fund the uh, South Sudanese military, despite its, its abuse of children. And so I really want listeners to understand that even though many of my cases are, are focused on the Cold War and Cold War dynamics because ultimately this is a, a historical investigation, we still see these dynamics today. Um, and not only in places like South Sudan, right? Uh, also in uh, our support for the Syrian opposition uh, against Bashar al-Assad, also in countries where we've been heavily invested uh, in terms of security outcomes like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and so it's important for us to ask whether these um, countries where we're intervening both militarily uh, and or with foreign aid assistance, whether our objectives are really in line with what we can achieve based on the tools we're using. And so specifically, the heart of my project really asks whether foreign assistance has ever been this tool of human rights or democracy promotion that advocates claim it is. It's probably worth being uh, a little skeptical of the claimed objectives at the same time. 
you know, sometimes uh, it, it might make sense to say, okay, this policy was successful according to the objectives of the U.S. government, but sometimes those objectives are ugly enough in themselves, never mind with the effects of U.S. foreign aid. It's also true that a lot of our foreign policy in general is kind of predicated on this notion that the United States is a kind of picture of uh, wisdom and goodness on uh, the issue of human rights around the world. And if we legitimate many other U.S. foreign policies on that erroneous premise uh, and then engage in all of these additional programs where we contribute to these problems, I think that uh, represents something of a problem for U.S. foreign policy in general. Absolutely. And one of my core arguments is that when it comes to foreign aid, we have this imperative always to do something, right? We, we need to respond. We need to send assistance. We need to send disaster relief, whatever it is. And this desire, this very strongly held desire by U.S. policymakers, and also I think the average American, right, has not been balanced by an obligation to assess whether what we're doing is making the problem worse. Right. And we see this now kind of in current discussions about the nomination of Samantha Power to the role of USAID administrator. So in a recent New York Times profile of Samantha Power, it quoted um, a former USAID administrator, Gail Smith, as saying, it's not like USAID is going to invade somebody in reference to um, Ms. Power's advocacy for uh, armed so-called humanitarian invention, right? But this perspective, this idea that, well, USAID is a civilian agency, it's not a military agency, we don't have guns, we're not going to occupy, really ignores the ways in which U.S. foreign aid has historically supported state violence um, and the ways in which it continues to do so in addition to giving non-lethal aid to violent actors, right? So we know that our assistance to the, the Syrian opposition eventually included splinter groups that, that included a range of jihadi groups that eventually became ISIS, right? And so we do not have good perspective um, both historically and in contemporary policy on the fact that we cannot adequately foresee what the longer-term impacts of our interventions will be, right? And aiding and abetting argues that foreign aid needs to be considered alongside every other form of intervention that we have and consider, right? So when we're talking about economic sanctions, there has been a lot of research done on the um, health impacts, the security impacts, the social impacts. And we don't treat foreign aid with the same sort of rigor, I think, because many individuals approach foreign aid as a sort of unmitigated good. Uh, and, I, and I think that it's time to revisit that expectation. You know, you really beat me to it. I was going to quote you from the conclusion of the book when you, when you make this point, because it's probably the most important insight for the policy world in DC to, to really grapple with, but it's probably also the one that they ignore the most. There's this action-oriented bias in the policy space, and it's just a fact that sometimes the best thing to do is not intervene, and usually that's way off the table. Um, what about reform ideas? How, uh, we talked about the fact that there have been efforts 
to improve this process to make U.S. aid effective to the ends that it actually seeks, and not, and you know, to avoid these unintended consequences. Um, they have been less than successful. Do you have better ideas? I think the U.S. foreign aid community has just spent five years, and probably you could drown in the amount of ink that has been spent talking about reform of USAID and restructuring and international development finance and all of these other other tools. I think where the real challenge lies is that um, we could conceptualize Truman and the Marshall Plan and Point Four as a sort of big bang moment where foreign aid was created. Um, in this kind of explosion of policy. And it has just been expanding outward ever since. So the universe that foreign aid is intended to address just keeps expanding outwards. And it's impossible to undertake any sort of reform or consolidation in that environment. U.S. foreign assistance went from kind of uplifting humanity out of poverty as its initial focus of of the point four agenda in particular, and then expanded to include anti-communism and other security considerations, and then all of these health um, and human security uh, considerations, and now increasingly considerations wrapped up against countering and preventing violent extremism. And we just are putting all of our hopes and expectations on foreign aid. So in that context, you know, we could talk about different policy tools. One thing that I suggest in the book is a maintenance of effort requirement that would make sure that recipient governments continue funding their own services. So that, for instance, when we provide health support to a country in response to, for instance, a global pandemic, that that country doesn't um, correspondingly reduce its own health spending because we're now paying for it, right? We can talk about um, different ways of conceptualizing U.S. foreign assistance by bringing it more in line with OECD guidelines and standards that focus really only on uh, core economic assistance and not the myriad other things that the United States individually considers foreign assistance. The problem with these sorts of Um, specific policy-focused discussions and and hopefully solutions-focused discussions is that we're now in this broader environment where foreign aid is being heavily, heavily marketed as a tool to counter China, to counter Russia, to expand democracy, to fight violent extremism, to extend LGBTQ rights. Like Any policy thing you could think of um, is now being put on foreign aid. And I don't think that's fair to the career professionals who work at USAID. I don't think that's fair to our congressional policymakers, um, but they're doing it to themselves. And that's part of the problem. And I think until we really agree on what the scope of US foreign assistance should be, what its core goals should be, and what it should tackle, um, then it's very difficult to have, have conversations about the ways forward. Right, which is why uh, we should take to heart your advice that we should uh, occasionally remember that not intervening is wise and perhaps appropriate. Um, Jessica, thanks for joining us Thank you so much. It was great. 